Today, we're talking to one of the most successful venture capitalists in the world. He has founded multiple private equity firms. He's always on the lookout for the next Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. And today, he's going to give us some insight into how he spots winning investments. We're going to hear some stories of his all-time favorite trades. And perhaps, just maybe, he'll even help us find the next big thing. Today on Dumb Money, it's a conversation with Alan Patrikoff. You're listening to the Dumb Money Live podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He's known for discovering and investing in some little early stage companies that have become major success stories. You might have heard of a few of them, like, oh, I don't know, Apple. Um, Alan, welcome to Dumb Money. Good morning, Alan. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So you've been investing in private companies for more than 50 years since before investing in startups was even called venture capital. Let's just start with a little background backstory. How did you get your start? Well, I started actually, uh, I hate to say it, in 1955 when I started the investment counseling business. And for without going through the success of jobs I held, all of which were honestly very exciting, uh, I, in, just on the border of 1970, decided I would go into the private investment area. The real reason I did it is one of the groups I had worked for was a family investment group. And during that period of time, and afterwards, I noticed that a lot of the family groups had teams of people investing in public companies uh, and were very active. And I was in that one of those teams doing investing in IBM. And my particular for a company, family company, was interested in the paper business. So I did International Paper, Rainier, Southwest Fars, Container Corp. And uh, during that process, every once in a while, one of the major investment bankers, whether it was Gus Levy from Goldman Sachs or Andre Mayer from Lazard or uh, JK from uh, Wertheim would call up the senior partner, family member, and say, listen, I have a piece of this deal for you or a piece of that deal. And nobody else was interested in these private investments, which were a very small part of the portfolio. But I was intrigued. And it was during this period in the 1960s that I got intrigued with a company called Datascope, which was a medical electronics company, which I helped to start uh, with someone where we had a very tiny investment and uh, worked with him from day one in building this company. The first uh, board was he, me, and the janitor of the firm, uh, and the building he was in, which is an abandoned dentist's office. And it was uh, the first uh, uh, cardiac monitoring device. This Fast forward, it was sold two years ago. Uh, a long time later, after it went public, it went up, it was sold for something close to a billion dollars, but it took a long time. And then at that time, I also invested for the family at New York Magazine, uh, which was just starting up in 1967. I became, uh, through some iterations, became chairman of the board of that. And the third one I did was a company called Lynn Broadcasting, which is the TV and radio business. And I was hooked. Private investing was much more exciting to me than being 
than investing in an international paper because I could really get into the guts of the company, be involved. I didn't have to be concerned with the whims of the market, of inflation, of interest rates. I was involved with young, exciting companies who were building something. I was fortunate those three uh, evolved into three very successful companies that had probably spoiled me. So in 1970, I decided to go into business. I'm talking fast for this audience to uh, uh, do the same thing, uh, advising other family groups. Uh, and I had nine family groups who retained me. And I put together a very tiny fund of two and a half million dollars. The name of the firm was Alan Patrick Associates. First per partner I hired was a woman. She became ultimately, when the industry was called venture capitalist, she became chairman of the National Venture Capital Association, probably the first woman in the venture business. Uh, by the way, my second firm, I started with Gray, with Dana Sell in 2006 at the age of 72, and another woman. And my third firm, which I started two and a half years ago, I also started with a woman named Abby Levy uh, called Primetime Partners. So I have been on the, I'm proud of having been on the forefront of bringing, bringing in women partners, investing in women entrepreneurs, hiring a lot of women. Uh, it's been part of the ethos of the firms I've been involved with. But uh, you asked how I got in the venture business. Uh, I started with two and a half million dollar fund. And I, as far as I understand, uh, Alan Patrogov Associates, which is now called Apex, which is Alan Patrogov Associates X for cross border, uh, is running 75 billion. Uh, I started Greycroft in 2006 with uh, uh, a $75 million fund that as far as I understand, I'm still chairman emeritus of Breakrop. Uh, they're managing something close to $3 billion. So uh, I've had three fast growing, I'm very proud of three companies. And now Primetime is a small fund to start with, $50 million. We started two and a half years ago. We'll hopefully some someday soon we'll be doing uh, Primetime too, but uh, not at the moment. But with an answer to a short question. No, that that's great. I know you're holding your book, which is, and you have, I had the pleasure of being on a lengthy Zoom with you about a year ago before the book came out. And you just have so many amazing stories, like the stories of your career, uh, going back to the very early, early days, um, which like, honestly, for everyone watching right now, like I, I have the chills because you know, my entire life is built around getting everybody, every person on earth into the investor class. And I truly feel that kind of reading books like No Red Lights, uh, understanding the stories from how people like Alan started very, very, very small um, are super inspirational to get the world all into the investor class. Alan, is there any story you can tell us about, maybe pick one from the book through your career uh, that you think might be interesting for, you know, a lot of the people who watch our show, we have a lot of younger investors, a lot of people that are have new into the investing space. Um, they mostly invest in stocks, but a lot of them have started investing in early stage companies. Is there like any story that you can take away a lesson from, from your career? You know, I'd rather answer it if you'll forgive me and you could stop me and say, that's enough of that can be something else. But the reason I, call the book No Red Lights was that's the way I've lived my life. And I what I really, you know, preach to an audience, this audience or any other, is uh to live a a full life. And that's what I've done, which is really the most exceptional thing. The fact that I've started three firms, 
the fact that I started my second one at 72, age 72, I think, and the third one at 85, I'm now 88. The fact that I ran the marathon this past year, I was the older per- oldest person to run the marathon. As I told you a little while ago, you couldn't believe it. I did do Burning Man last summer, uh, and I paragliding uh, this Christmas over a day in Mexico and uh, and went out to Big Sky, Montana uh, for uh, snow. But I, you know, I, so over the years, you know, clearly I've invested in so many companies. I took AOL out of bankruptcy. I, 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 I was lucky in Apple. I, I will tell you the story in Apple just so I, you don't, this book is, this book and me is not about bragging. I, there are more things I lost money in or made mistakes in that are in the book, not uh, crow, crowing about my successes. Apple was an accident. I was just very intrigued with when I saw it happening uh, in terms of disruption of young companies, and I, meaning they were disrupting bigger companies. And uh, the personal computer was an idea that it was in a very, very nascent stage. This is now 1979. And uh, I, uh, had bought some uh, a friend of mine's daughter, a high school president, a Commodore business machine, and got to play around with that and learn what that what was happening there. And then Texas Instruments had come out with another product, and I had been reading about this company, Apple, on the West Coast, and uh, I uh, was very fortunate to be close with a, a one of the most prominent technology early stage uh, investment bankers called Underberg Tobin. I'm sure you, just historically, the famous firms at that time were Hambrick and Quist, Robertson, Stevens, Montgomery, I'm not sure exactly when Montgomery started, uh, and and Underberg Tobin was one of them. And uh, Tommy Underberg brought Intel public, and he called me one day and said that Apple, which I had been reading about, was doing a private placement. It was just the second year and uh, I, uh, he had a small piece. I think he had $3 million in total, and he offered me a $350,000 position, and I took it for my first fund that I described to you, uh, and that's all we were allocated. <laughs> I didn't pick that odd number. Uh, you know what it was valued at at that time, Alan, the, the company? It was around, I believe, around $60 million, uh, even if <laughs> You're listening to the Dumb Money Live podcast. While I was writing the book, I had someone at Greycroft create a formula for me so I could keep track of the price and insert into the book the actual price at printing. And at printing, it was worth $7 billion. Uh, I don't <laughs> but that, That's amazing. I'm sure every venture capitalist who has had a, at least one success would have that same kind of benefit over, you know, I didn't own the stock. We distributed it in 1984. I have no idea who owns it. Uh, now, uh, you know, we, we were all in funds that supposedly ended 10 years and we are, we wouldn't be a business if we didn't recycle the investments we made, uh, AOL, I did in 84, uh, and that, uh, believe it or not, was a game company beforehand and came out, was coming out of bankruptcy. And I went into that with, uh, Hamilton Quist, actually Kleiner Perkins, uh, uh, in a, you know, to try to morph that into a uh, broader, non, not just a game company. And uh, I was, again, not there when AOL was sold for the amazing price of $100 billion, which was astronomical at the time. And as you know, 
I think the last trade for AOL was six billion. Uh, but we've been law again log out of it. You uh, 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 one story, uh, the big story of my biggest failure of missing something was I uh, I was shown Starbucks in the 1980s, uh, early 80s, when it had two stores in Seattle, and uh, uh, I I just couldn't get my hands around. I was too parochial because in New York in those days, not today. Uh, in those days, there were two coffee shops on every block, every block. And I couldn't understand how a venture capitalist could get excited about it. two coffee shops in Seattle. And I, I missed entirely the fact that this was a new, this wasn't a coffee shop as I had seen it. This was a place not to sit on a, right. uh, on a ro- rotating bar stool and, and, or sit in a booth, but and get in and out in five minutes, but rather subplaced to socialize and hang around and, and, and make in your office in many cases. So I miss that by being too parochial. I tried, you know, it's absolutely not to, to be that parochial, but, you know, there is a tendency to, you know, know something about your neighborhood and try to relate that to investment opportunities. But, uh, you know, I, when, when you, when you have a coffee shop on every block and you have a, a new brand that is selling it for more money, it, it makes sense. But you basically all your, your roster of companies reads like the, uh, the who's who of successful startups. So I'm just curious how you decide when to invest and when not to. So sometimes you're not, they're not going to bat a thousand, but like, what are your kind of thoughts on what are you, what are you looking for when you're making a investment? We are far from batting a thousand. Uh, and I think no one in the venture business, uh, has anything like that as a record. Uh, as you know, Ron Conway, who's fairly well known on the West Coast, has this real spray concept where he invested hundreds of companies. It puts a little bit in the start. And, you know, he, he comes he comes out with a Google or a Facebook that makes it all worthwhile. But most people don't have that broader concept. I think that uh, he tries to be discerning too. I, I know that. Uh, but uh, I, you know... I will tell you what I ideally look for, uh, but don't pin me on the fact that that's what I invested. I mean, ideally look for someone who really knows something about the subject they're going into, as opposed to just you know thinking it's a good idea. I ideally look for someone who's passionate about something. I ideally look for someone who knows how to motivate people and, and put a team together. Someone who understands the economics of the business. Uh, and I... Uh, uh, understands the market that they're addressing and understands what the potential rewards are for that business. Now, you know, how often I find that uh, is very, very rare. And so most of my investments don't reflect all those brilliant criteria. But uh, I would say if that kind of person walks in the door, they have a very high probability of getting financed by, by me or anybody else. I, I resent uh, strongly and have had many open debates with several prominent people about the fact that there's a discrimination against women in the business. I don't think there is. The, the, the only issue, any woman that fits the what I just told you about will certainly have many people who want to put money in, in the business, assuming the valuation is not, you know, 2021, early 22 valuation, if it's realistic. Uh, but I think that... Uh, you know, they're, they're few and far between. And, uh, uh, you know, we just hope we can find 
companies that don't have everything but have some of those characteristics. But I, you know, I give courses every once a, a lecture at one of the business schools, and every time I do it, I always say, "How many of you want to start a company?" And seventy before this is pre-COVID, I haven't done that questioning. I have spoken, but not questioning. How many of you are going to start? But it's usually seventy-five percent, and the reason it's seventy-five percent because they all know some. Got to use the right word. Someone who's not as brilliant as they are, who had started a business two or three or four years before, and gone into ride, uh, you know, uh, a dog walking company or a fast delivery company, and make ten or a hundred million dollars from uh, some absurd valuation. And so they say, if I could, if they could do, it, why can't I? Uh, and with no background in the business, no passion, uh, no understanding of what the economics of the business, but the, a desire to do a startup because that's the thing to do. So I think, uh, I believe very strongly in young people uh, learning under someone who's really smart in a startup, preferably watch their mistakes, learn what they do right, learn how a business gets funded, and find something that really, really interests you and you know something about, and uh, then start something. Now, Alan, I have a thesis that I wanted. To, I have Mark, a thesis on on your success. I don't know if I'm right or wrong, and we'll we'll get to guys. We'll get to your questions in just a minute. I promise. If people are asking some good questions for Alan, but my thesis from from what I know about you and, and what you've told me in the past, you know, I've always said that you know Wall Street's biggest disadvantage is they're so geographically isolated. They kind of do the same thing every day. They see the same people. They're in an echo chamber and they really don't have their feet deeply planted in the real world. You know, one of our advantages, and I think my investment success has come from me being so deeply rooted in the real world throughout, you know, through the entire country, being able to see trends emerge, not just, you know, on the, you know, in LA and New York, but in Ohio, right? Uh, and a lot of times that that's kind of out out of scope. Now, I know you're a New Yorker, but it seems to me that you're a guy who throughout your whole life, every single day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, drinks, you're doing things seven days a week, not just to mention the fact that you're out there doing Burning Man, right? At this point in your life, that has been the way you've ha treated your entire life, hasn't? You have probably met more people have seen more opportunities because you truly have a pulse on culture and what people are doing, what they're talking about, how the world is changing, because you really have deeply immersed yourself in life. And I think that's something that people really don't appreciate from an investor. Would you say, am I somewhat correct that you think that's helped you both in your career and also as an investor, because you're just, you're not far removed from the world. You're, you're just deeply in it every day. Chris, you couldn't have sent a preamble from my book more than I could, which is the reason I wrote this book and why it's titled No Red Lights. No Red Lights describes my life, which is I don't know the word no, and I have lived a really unusual life uh, having been in politics, having been in venture capital, having collected classic cars, having uh, started a discotheque in New York, having started a magazine, having uh, given a cut run a concert at Town Hall, uh, having been an advisor to the president of Nigeria and being involved with the World Bank and International Development. And uh, the list, and, you know, my marathon running with this, I ran recently, but I ran in my 40s, I ran four or five times. 
And what I was concerned with, the reason I bought the book, wrote the book, is there are a lot of young people who just sit there and do spreadsheets all day and you know have the same narrow group of friends and or lawyers who just do briefs and uh, architects who just do drawings and go out and don't look for opportunities or don't seize opportunities that pass right by them. I mean, I think, for example, every young person should get involved in politics at a local level early and, you know, get themselves immersed, you know, get involved in a in a poetry class to do something else rather than the profession they're in. And I live my life literally, by the way, it's dangerous to walk down Madison Avenue or Fifth Avenue because you could get killed because I don't pay much attention to light. So uh, I'll come to New York and I'll, I'll show you how it's done. If I die before 114, which you know is my objective, uh, it will be because I get hit by a, a delivery bicycle, which is the biggest danger. <laughs> but I practice in my career to meet people. Uh, if I go to, uh, and, I, and I have that as established in the firms I've run, you don't go to a conference and sit and talk with the four people from your office because that doesn't accomplish anything. If you're, you go to a group of strangers, you extend your hand, you meet people, and I've done that all my life. So you have to remember, uh, everything in life is cumulative. The people you meet in your day one of your career, who knows? One of them could be president of the United States. It's very possible. Or president of J.P. Morgan. Uh, or, or on the other hand, they could end up going to jail. Uh, <laughs> it's all possible. But every, uh, I'll just mention one thing. I wrote a blog about oh five, six, seven years ago, which is worthwhile reading. I think I put it on Medium. I don't remember. But the title of it was "You Don't Remember Me, But." That was the title, and I incorporated somewhere in the book is that you meet so many people along your life that. Uh, at some stage, for me, it started around when I was in the 70s, someone will come up to me every single day of the week on the street, at a meeting, at a dinner, at a restaurant, come over and say, you don't remember me, but you, I worked for you, you backed my company, you were the only person who answered my telephone call because I answered every t- telephone call in 24 hours. I wrote personal notes to people, uh, you know, uh, uh, Warren Buffett today, if you write him a letter, you'll get a response in a little personal, you know, pen handwriting all in the corner of your letter uh, with his response. Maybe, uh, maybe you do. When I write, he, he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't write me back. I, I think I think we're in a different uh, league. He I don't know, but that he he's a humble person too. You're listening to the Dumb Money Live podcast. He's like me. I travel the subways, buses. I was the biggest customer in New York of Via which was a ride-sharing outfit. I don't have a driver and on my own plane. I don't have a boat. I have just been a very ordinary person and live a very ordinary life. But I, what I found, I, what people used to say this to me, you don't remember me, but I used to be very, very nervous because you know that the possibilities of the alternative, of, you know, if you don't treat people well, if you, if you uh, don't respond to their phone calls, if you don't uh, uh, take interviews, if you don't, most of all, if you're a venture capitalist, if you don't learn how to say no when you don't do a deal, which is 99% of the time, uh, the entrepreneur, that's his baby, and you really insulted his baby. So you really have to know how to say no. So, But at this stage, uh, it, it's, it's flattering and it's very pleasant. I was in 
uh, traveling with my granddaughter at colleges yesterday. And we went to four colleges and I had a three out of four. Someone came up to me and said, you don't remember me, but uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, it, it, when you develop our relationships over 50 plus years, you meet a lot of people. And if you tra- treated them nicely, uh, and that's the most important, uh, but remember everything is cumulative. The people you start with, are the, they'll be there later. So we've had I people ask about. Go ahead, Jordan. Sorry. Okay. So we've had some people ask about um, you defining risk, and I wanted to take that a little bit further. So VC, we know, is a slightly a numbers game, and you alluded to this a little bit. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, losing money? So you put money into a company, they go out of business. Uh, is that a bigger fear for you, or is missing out on the next big thing a bigger fear for you? Uh, gee, I hadn't thought about which which one is more thoughtful. I, I, I let, let, can I twist around a little bit? Yeah, I I think there's a problem. I'm very intrigued with the concept of risk. And when I went to Europe with expanding Alan Patrogov Associates, ultimately APAC, into Europe, uh, Europe had no concept of risk. I mean, nobody wanted to take a risk. They wouldn't leave a job. They they had a they were a high level executive. They didn't want to become an entrepreneur because they had a cushy job with a chauffeur, a long pension fund, and risk taking was was almost non-existent. And you if you failed, you really got in a lot of your career could be ruined. In many countries, it's like in some countries in Japan or India, if you don't get into the right school, you 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 know you're 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 cooked. Uh, it, it's a shame. Here in this country, risk taking is part of the ethos of this country and failure is part of it. Uh, if you, if you fail once, uh, I think venture capitalists like the idea of someone who's, I mean, they'd like to have someone who's a serial entrepreneur who, who succeeded, but if you fail, that doesn't knock you out of the box. Certainly if you understand the reasons behind the failure of the company, uh, if you were the failure is one thing, if the company was a failure, it's a different story. Uh, so I think a lot about risk and I, I have to say, I am not the best investors in time, investor in times like we've experienced in the last year. I was not a happy camper in 99, 2000, 2001 when I saw crazy, crazy valuations in the initial phase of the internet. Uh, and uh, I preach the fact that, you know, venture capitalists and me included, I don't want to, you know, no, not be it personally, but firms I'm in. If we invested a company and five years later, we doubled our money, everybody or tripled it, everybody will really get excited. You know, we did it, you know, we tripled our money. And they don't think back to the fact that the day they invested, the risk they took was enormous and the reward potential was not adequate to compensate for the valuation of the company they went into and the risk they took. So I think there's a real need for more better grounding in risk versus reward. Uh, to me, if you're in the venture business and you're taking a high risk, you should be shooting for 10 times of your money minimum. If you look at, you know, maybe I'm not putting a time frame with it. Uh, uh, if your risk is limited, you know, you can accept a lower rate of return. I think that we've had a situation in the last year and a half, two years, where people have taken extraordinary risks with because the valuations they placed on it in relation to what they can possibly make is so limited. Now, there are exceptions all over the place. So 
you know, I'm, I I read just as much as you do about, you know, the new what's happening at AI at the moment and what for a moment happened to crypto. But uh, I, I think there's a need more, the greater need for discipline of the risk reward relationship and, and really being honest about quantifying it. And then uh, once you've taken that, adjust the price you're willing to pay to go into a deal. We have a lot of overpriced deals hanging out in the venture business today. No, I badly, I mean, I think we see the the biggest problem is that as, you know, an early stage or a venture investor, you have a lot of competition also, right? And so that helps drive up the price for some of these deals out of your favor. So, but no, thanks for answering that. And Alan, that leads to another question that people have been asking. Everyone has the same thing on their mind. They're concerned about the macroeconomic environment. Um, You know, a lot of our viewers have not been through something like this before. Um, You've been through it many, many, many times. I mean, the question to you is, how do you feel about where we are right now in terms of, is it too late? Is this late stage capitalism? We keep hearing about that. That's That's about to collapse. Or is it still a good time to be an investor? And if so, are there other areas of the world that you think are, are are better suited to this type of inflationary environment than investing here in the U.S.? Or are there sectors that you think that are better suited to this weird inflationary environment? I mean, you've seen this before, right? Or stuff just like this. How I, nervous I, are you? I've seen this many times before. But <laughs> let me emphasize that what I'm doing now, you know, I have to be honest, I am investing through my newest firm, Primetime Partners, which is focused on investments, any type of investment serving the elderly population. It's not because I'm elderly, it's because the fastest growing part of the economy is people over 60. By by 2030, there'll be more people over 60 than there will be under 18. Uh, and the life expectancy, and you heard me say, I, I'm going to live to 114. I've been saying that for, oh, at least 15 years. I think that I lear- heard that from a lecture at that time. That same lecture today would say you're going to live to 120. Uh, and uh, there was an article out recently by a very prominent person at Harvard who said there, I, I, I don't subscribe to this, who said there is probably someone alive today who will live to 150. I mean, it's a hard thing to believe. But with the developments in drugs and technology and uh, health and exercise, nutrition, it's very possible. And I'm not trying to promote it. I'm just telling you that's where I focus on private investments. We've made 30 investments in that area, which is not an over-bought, uh, over-competitive area, although now the word wellness is being attached to it. And everyone had, does seem to have an interest as a sideline of being interested in wellness. Uh, so I am parochial and I am doing private deals, not public deals. That said, I've seen cycles. I, I do, this is not a time to sell if you're in the public markets. Uh, I don't think, uh, I would run away from the market. On the other hand, I think that we're not fully, I've been saying this now publicly for the last six months. Uh, so it's not like I'm saying today, uh, I would be careful that you don't get caught in their trap, which is, you know, a run up to the market and then it drops down. And that's exactly what we've seen in the last several months is, you know, the markets had euphoria for a moment and then, then collapses. I, I think when you have, uh, fortunately, again, going back to prime time, we don't have any impact from inflation on my, in our area. Interest rates are no consequence because none of our companies 
could borrow money if they wanted to. None of them are dealing with supply chains from the from uh, the Ukraine or Europe or China or Russia or anything else. So we are kind of, I don't want to say impervious, but that's not a concern of ours. And you don't hear that. Uh, and you don't hear about politics um, uh, at all. But uh, I think those factors are all prevalent in the public markets. And you have to be concerned with where interest rates, I don't think it's going down that fast. Uh, I think that uh, we are at a very uncertain time and any uh, any unexpected development can have a dramatic impact on stock prices. So uh, I'd say it's a time to be cautious. I, uh, you know, if you ask me where I think the most interesting area to invest is an area I have not invested in for 25 years, which is in biotech. Uh, I think that there are going to be solutions to cancer. My sadly, my wife died two years ago after 12 years of having Alzheimer's, I don't see any solution right on the horizon, but God knows there's a lot of emphasis in that, emphasis in that. and I think that there is uh, uh, a lot of opportunities and, uh, you know, drugs and modalities that are going to help everybody to live longer and prevent diabetes and, and treat, treat these illnesses. So uh, I think that anything in the if it was technology as well as uh, scientific that deals with that is a very, very exciting area. And I, I have to say, looking back, I would say the PC revolution of the late 70s was big. I forgot to mention I was involved in the first cellular company. I think that was a, a very big uh, seminal event. I would say that was the second. Se- the first one was the chip. I'll go back a little further. The chip, then then a personal computer, which changed a lot, then cellular, then the internet. I think that you know machine learning, AI today is a seminal development that's going to change the way a lot of things are going to happen and, and get into a lot of different areas, uh, you know, whether it's medicine or education or whatever. Uh, we're going to be able to do things faster, better, cheaper, quicker. Uh, I, you know, it, it's... It's, it's it's a big deal. I I have not seen it in the area that I'm focused on, uh, which you know it, that that's what you know I can't can't do anything about that. But I I do think it's going to have an impact on a lot of public companies and a lot of technology. Yeah, some of the smartest people we know in health sciences have all told us over the past year that they're seeing acceleration and breakthroughs that they're on the cusp of, whether it's cancer research. Um, you know, genome type research, right? Combined with technology that they think the next 10 years are going to be revolutionary in that space. So it's interesting to hear you say that because we've been hearing the same sort of thing from people that are deep, deep in the health sciences, health science space themselves. And it's kind of Um, a confluence of a bunch of, with with AI going as fast as it is, that's, that's rapid, making a a rapid change in the healthcare world. And it's just... That's what I was saying. And there was when I I remember when our first time we made biotech investments, it would take 10, 10 years to get a, a drug through phase one, two, or three. Today, with uh, developments, as you just said, a genome and the uh, uh, AI coming on, you're going to be able to process things much faster, do studies much faster, and drugs will come out quicker and save live more lives sooner, which will end up making them live longer, which will make them eligible for 
many of the companies we've invested in to uh, make good investments, hopefully. I, I mean, I had a breakfast this morning with a woman CEO. I'm not trying to promote her company. It's a private company. Uh, I'll give you the name of it because you can't go out and buy it. It's called Nourished Rx, which has taken the concept as food as medicine. Food is medicine. In other words, and working with the health plans who will do anything in the world to prevent people going in the hospital. But uh, uh, food and how people are fed can have an impact on their recovery after having cancer or d- diabetes, whatever else. I'm just kidding. You got an idea of the kind of things that are out there to uh, help extend life and prevent diseases. So let me ask you a question. Last time we spoke, you were talking about doing Burning Man and a marathon. And I was like, there's no way he's going to do both. Maybe he pulls off one or the other. That seemed crazy ambitious. And you did both. Um, it, it, first of all, any takeaway from Burning Man? Because I've been always thought about Burning Man and what it'd be like to go there. And I was like, I thought I was too old for Burning Man. But now I feel like I can do it someday. And then what's the next thing personally for you that, that you have that you want to go out and do uh, or achieve? I, you know, to answer the first question about Burning Man, I, I was curious. Remember, no red lights. Uh, it was there. I heard about it. Everybody, friends of mine had tried to convince me to go back in 2019 and I signed up, but they canceled. Uh, and so it was still on my bucket list, so to speak. Uh, and uh, the marathon I did because I, I had done it 40 years ago, but I watched the year before as they went by me at Central Park and I said, damn it, I'm going to try. And I hired a coach, a uh, running coach to get ready. Uh, 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 Burning Man is a great experience in that you have 80,000 people in the desert. It starts with nothing and it ends with nothing. In the meantime, there's an incredible number of art events, music events, uh, you meet people. I think the most interesting part for me is meeting people that I had never met before. And uh, uh, at age 88, I have made a whole new group of friends, which doesn't You don't get many new friends at 88 uh, uh, from all walks of life that have nothing to do with the venture capital business. Most of my friends are not in the venture capital business, uh, not by design, but just that's the way it happens to, you know, that's the way the cookie is crumbled. I've been involved in art, music, and theater, and a lot of other things. But yeah, it's another thing I've been involved in is theater. Uh, so uh, I thought Burning Man, I was intrigued by the art and the music, and, and uh, I just wanted to see it. Uh, and I, you know, you're going to ask me the next question, am I going again? Um, I, I'm leaning on the positive side, uh, but I have a, I have I haven't t- taken the final step. Uh, I I didn't do it in the highest end, uh, going in an RV. I got there a little. So I ended up in a a ship pod, which is like a big tent, which was not an idea. Uh, I think if I come back, I'll do an RV. Uh, and I would, you know, you have camps. There are hundreds of camps, uh, and I was at a camp that was worked out very well. So, uh, uh, you know, I I'd recommend it, and I. I don't think I don't I don't know, but I don't think I was the oldest person who was there. And when I have bucket list, I'm open to ideas. I'm thinking of walking this walk and and uh, goes to Spain and uh, I think Spain, Portugal, and France. Not the whole thing to do that. The, the Santiago. I I did a portion of it a couple yeah, summers that, ago. I'm thinking of doing the Camino of Santiago. 
uh, or uh, I don't know, I'll find something. If someone if someone comes up with an idea, you know, maybe go to a base camp of some mountain. Uh, I'll see what how I feel. But no, there's no need. To, I, I'm not trying to prove anything. Uh, I I've been asked whether I'm going to go in the in the marathon this year at 89, and I think I've proved. You know, I don't I don't want I don't want to push my luck. Uh, Running a marathon could be a lot on the body, on any person's body as well, too. So I'm in pretty good shape. I mean, I, you know, I have a very rigorous, you know, exercise. I walk every, every single place I go where if it's conceivable, I walk. So I get in, you know, a lot of miles. Meanwhile, I tweaked my back and I'm, I'm literally walking with a cane around my room right now. (laughs) <laughs> I went to a reunion every uh, three months, believe it or not, of my high school class, which was 70 years ago. And there are eight of us, Not there are more than eight left, but eight come to these lunches. Uh, and they run it near my office because I'm the only one out of the eight who works. Uh, and the other seven all wear hearing aids. They all walk with walkers or with canes that are bent over. So I've obviously been doing something right by uh, running through red lights uh, and doing a lot of things. And I, you know, I want to inspire people. That's the reason I wrote this book was to inspire young people and to older people. Don't it's, if, if you follow that I'm going to live to 114 at 60, you haven't even lived to half your life. And there are so many firms that have forced retirements at 60. My old firm of Apex has a forced retirement at 60. The, the firm with your name on it made you leave. <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> I left. But yeah, I understand the rack. They were, everyone wants to make room for younger people to come up. But the fact is, okay, then the people who are in the 60s want to start thinking about going into business again, starting all over again. If you're in the paint business, go back in the paint business. You want to be become a poet, go back to law school, do something, and assume you're going to, you've got the rest, second half of your life to live. So for first, young people, do an inspiring life, do try different things that get excited for older people. Don't stop living at 60 and go play golf. Well, this Alan, I I know that we're running out of time with you, but I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on and remind people that the name of the book is no red lights reflections on life, 50 years in venture capital and never driving alone. And, uh, but Amazon and I, I, since I started audible, the CEO of Audible said the best books on Audible are read by the person who writes them. So I actually... Did you narrate the Audible? Oh, I'm totally doing that. I saw a couple of people in our chat actually said they bought the Audible. So. Yeah. That is awesome. Well, and I see in our chat that the knowledge being dro- dropped here is very much appreciated. And uh, we love it. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. And thank you guys for tuning in. Until next time, we are Dumb Money. We will see you next week. Or maybe later this week. You have to subscribe. That's the only way you'll know when we're on. We're done, honey. We'll see you then. Mm